The word compromise. Think about the word compromise. How would that word impact you if you hear it in a conversation, if you hear it on the news? It can perhaps impact you a number of different ways, but, but the word compromise is defined by yourdictionary.com as this. It's when two sides give up some demands to meet somewhere in the middle. That's what compromise is. Giving up something to meet somebody or some other uh, interest in the middle to, to some degree. Sometimes compromise can be good. If you are buying a house and you negotiate back and forth with the seller and he comes off the price and you get the house for a better price, then that's good compromise, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> but sometimes compromise can be bad. If it relates to your convictions or your morals or your character or your faith. If someone steals from their company, that's bad compromise. As they compromise perhaps their character and their convictions. In Revelation chapter 2, we're working our way through seven churches that Jesus addresses there in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Today we're looking at the church at Pergamum. Let me invite you to stand with me if you will. We're going to read from Revelation 2 verses 12 through 17, and we're going to discover, or be reminded, if you know this passage, we're going to discover that the church at Pergamum was a compromising church, and not in a good way. I'm just going to read a couple of verses, starting at verse 12. Jesus says, To the angel, or the messenger of the church in Pergamum, write, The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword... I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Our Heavenly Father, today, would we be encouraged by your word? Would we be convicted of compromise? Would we be determined to follow after you and may you be glorified in our life, and may you strengthen us to follow you for your glory, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So one thing that we see over and over again in the scriptures is that as Jesus establishes the church, he calls the church to faithfulness. That's not a surprise to anybody, is it? That Jesus calls the church to faithfulness, also recognizing that the church is made up of its members. And so if Jesus calls the church to faithfulness, He's calling the members of the church, the individual believers, those that have called upon Him as Lord and Savior. He's calling us individually to faithfulness. And so let's take a few moments this morning, and, and we have the benefit of learning from the mistakes and the situations of others as recorded in Scripture so that we might learn lessons without having to experience the same lessons that others have learned. So let's look today at the church at Pergamum and, uh, and evaluate Ridgecrest Baptist Church based on the evaluation that Jesus gave to this church at Pergamum. Notice, first of all, the church. The church, it says there in, in verse number 12, to the angel of the church at Pergamum, write. Let's talk about Pergamum just for a minute. Uh, you never see a church named Pergamum Baptist Church. I've never seen that. Has anybody seen that sign anywhere? We haven't seen that. Uh, usually, I don't remember. Now, I, I'll, I'll admit to you, I was not the best student back in high school in history class. I don't remember reading about Pergamum in history class. Does anybody here remember reading about it 
in history class. So, so for many of us, just the name Pergamum doesn't bring really anything to mind because we just don't know. Let me give you a little bit of history about Pergamum. It was a town in the days of the New Testament. It was a Roman town. The name Pergamum means citadel because it was a fortified city. There were soldiers stationed there. There was a, there was a, a defense post set up there. And so it was a, a, a defensive city. It was a wealthy city. A lot of wealth flowed in and out of Pergamum. It was a city of trade and commerce and culture. It was an influential city. In fact, one historian called Pergamum the greatest city in Asia Minor. And so this is not some little hole-in-the-wall uh, outpost. This is a major metropolis uh, where, where commerce flowed, where culture flowed, where there's an interaction of ethnicities and cultures from all around. In fact, the more I read and understand, the more I realize it's probably an area geographically and ethnically and culturally much like the Raleigh-Durham Chapel area that we live in today. This probably might be a modern equivalent of Pergamum. That's the church. In that city, there was a church established. Notice, secondly, the description of Jesus. Jesus, we, we spent some time a few weeks ago talking about how Jesus, the one who walks among the churches, he's the one who knows everything that happens in the churches. He makes it very clear that he is the sovereign. He's in authority over all the churches and over all things. And what a wonderful blessing that is. And so there's two descriptions here that we see of Jesus. The first is that Jesus is the one who speaks. We have a Savior, we have a God who doesn't just observe and withhold things from us, but we have a Savior who speaks to us. Isn't that wonderful to know? Jesus has something to say. The words of Him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Now the sword, if you think about that, the picture of Jesus is the sword coming out of His mouth. And in one way, that's a sword of judgment. In another way, it's a sword of war. But we also know from Ephesians chapter 5 that as, as Christians, we have as a weapon, really our only offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's what we see in Ephesians 6.17. As Jesus speaks, we recognize that it is His Word that is not only His weapon and His judgment, but it is His Word that communicates to us. And likewise, as believers and followers of Christ, He's given us His Word. It's all we have, but it's also all that we need. And Jesus here demonstrates uh, that His Word is effective, His Word is for us, and His Word is indeed all that we need. Secondly, notice not only is Jesus the one who speaks, but in verse 13 we also see He's the one who knows. He knows well, what does he know? He knows everything. The, the, the theological word for, for Jesus knowing everything is the word omniscience. He is all-knowing at all times of all things. And, and that should be for us, that, that should be something that is comforting because he knows everything about us. It ought to be something for us that is encouraging because Jesus knows our circumstances, and because He is omnipotent or all-powerful, we know that in our circumstances, which He knows about, He is able to empower us to do whatever He's called us to do. That ought to be encouraging. It also ought to be satisfying to know that Jesus does not call me 
to do something that He does not empower me to do. And if Jesus has not empowered and called me to do a certain thing, it's not my place to seek that thing, but only to be satisfied and encouraged knowing that He knows all of my circumstances. Well, let me tell you this. It's also scary. It's scary to think that Jesus knows everything there is to know about me. When I thought that nobody else was looking and perhaps nobody else on earth saw or heard, Jesus saw and Jesus heard. When nobody else, I know, in my mind, you can't tell what I'm thinking, but Jesus knows what I'm thinking. Why? Because He's the one who knows. Notice that sometimes He places us in our circumstances. Have you ever thought about the fact that you and I may well be in exactly the circumstances He has placed us in because He knows us and He knows what's going on? Have you ever thought about the fact that, 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 that in our circumstances He is always at work to mold us and to shape us and to prepare us? It, it amazes me in those moments when I recognize that, that out of the blue something happens and I'm able to have an impact for Christ and only to look back later and recognize that God had directed my steps and put me in circumstances, some of which I didn't even like. But He put me there and opened a door and did something in my life or used me to do something in somebody else's life. What a wonderful thing that is. Sometimes He moves us out of our circumstances. All of us know difficulties of health or relationships or finances or, or stress in life. And sometimes God moves us out of those circumstances, but sometimes He puts us in those circumstances to accomplish His will. Notice in verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. I know where you participate and practice your life. I know that. And then He says this, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. I've heard about some rough places in the world. But Pergamum was a place where Jesus says that's where Satan's throne is. But you know what? Jesus knows. He knows that. And I want you to notice something very important in this verse of Scripture. Notice that in the very place where Satan's throne is, guess what's there? A church, a presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it lets us know that there's no place so dark that the light of the gospel cannot shine. And what a wonderful encouragement that ought to be. That's no uh, accident that there's a church in Pergamum. I want you to notice thirdly, in verse 13, the spiritual condition of the church. There are three descriptions here of the, of the church and of the members of that church in that day. And I want you to think, do, do these apply to, to our circumstances here today? Notice the first description is they were surrounded by ungodliness. Surrounded by ungodliness. We may tend to think, if we're not careful, by watching the news or watching the culture, we may think, well, it's never been so bad culturally or spiritually as it is today. But history would tell us otherwise. In fact, here in the Scriptures itself, it tells us that here's a place where Satan's throne is, and here's a place where the church, there, the members of the church, those living for Christ, are surrounded on every side by ungodliness. Notice again verse 13. He says, you dwell where Satan's throne is. Now, I know my first response. If Jesus would ever say that to me, I'd say, well, I'm putting my house up for sale. I'm getting out of here. But you know, sometimes Jesus 
wants us to be right there where Satan's throne is. So that we might be the bearer of the light of the gospel. Why would Pergamum be Satan's throne? Let me give you a couple of reasons that history tells us. One is that Pergamum was a city dedicated to the worship of Caesar as God. And so, so in certain areas of the Roman Empire where, where, where Caesar worship took place, and officially it was all over the empire, but people were required to say Caesar is Lord. And so, so, so in that environment, here you have uh, 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 someone who is opposing Jesus as Lord. So Caesar worship may, was one reason why it was called Satan's throne. There's another reason too, and that is there was a temple there dedicated to the goddess Roma, the Roman goddess Roma. They were worshipers. They didn't worship the one true God. They worshiped the goddess Roma. There was also an altar there in that city dedicated to the worship of Zeus. Now you and I may think, well, we learned about mythology back in school and we read the stories about Zeus and about this one and that one and, 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 and all the different things. But, and we, we look at it as cartoons or, or humor. But back in the day, they worshiped these gods, the Greek gods, the Roman gods. There in, in Pergamum was also a temple dedicated to the god of healing called Asclepius. I think that's how you say it. And Asclepius was symbolized as a serpent. Likewise, if you know the scriptures, Satan is symbolized as a serpent as well. So as we think about Pergamum, we think about it being a throne of Satan... But here's what we can say about Pergamum. Pergamum was a very spiritual place. All these different religions that were there indicate there was, it was a very spiritual place. It was a very religious place, but it was also a very ungodly place. And so we might ask the question, what does Satan's throne look like today? Is it located only in one city? Is, it a, is there just an outpost here, there, or yonder, or could it be said that anywhere that there is spiritual compromise to the one true God, that there is a place where Satan's throne is? Could it be said that in a particular city, that because of a sin and in grievances against God in that city, that could be called a place where Satan's throne is? Could it be, be said of a, of, of, a, of, a, of a family or of a, of a community that because of what happens there, because of, of sin that's happened in the past, or even in the present, that that could be a place where Satan's throne is? Could it be that in, in a family unit, in a house, in a neighborhood, that, that because of what happens there in wickedness and evil, that that could be a place where it is said that Satan's throne is? Could it be that with technology today that we could say that different websites on the Internet are places where Satan's throne is? Could it be said that, that what's out there in, in technology with, with movies or television shows or, or songs on the radio or, or any other forms of media that, 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 that challenge and go against God and call people to compromise their faith, could it be said that, that, that in those there are thrones where Satan is in those elements, in the world, in the day in which we live? Well, they were surrounded by ungodliness. Notice secondly in verse 13, in spite of that, they were strong in their faith. This ought to be encouraging to us that, that even though there may be different forms of religion, different forms of spirituality, different things happening all around us, where ungodliness is rampant, it does not mean that we have to jump in and participate and turn our backs on God. Even though that was the environment, notice what it says there, yet you hold fast my name. Even though these things are happening and Satan's throne is right down the street, 
you hold fast my name. He's saying there is you're staying and you're remaining strong in your faith. You have not backed down. Let's talk about being strong in faith. Now, the fact that you're here today, I'm going to make an assumption, and sometimes that's dangerous, Al, if you make assumptions about things. I'm going to make an assumption that the fact that you're here today is at least an indication that you have an interest or a desire in being strong in faith. And that being the case, let's ask the question, what is it that helps us to be strong in faith? Let me give you three things real quick that helps us to be strong in faith. One is that, that we have an, a strong personal faith in Jesus Christ. That we've each come to the place where we have said for ourselves, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. You died on the cross for my sins. You were buried and raised from the dead. And I turn from my sins. I embrace you as my Savior. And so, so a strong personal faith that you know and you are anchored to the fact that your sins are forgiven and that you are, uh, and that you are moving forward in your faith, that is a, an indication of a strong faith. The second thing is having Christian friends and family. Of, of gathering around yourselves and being around people that they are likewise strong in their faith. And they're going to encourage you down the right path. They're going to encourage you in your spiritual walk. They're going to encourage you in your church walk. They're going to encourage you in your family. They're going to encourage you in your finances. Somebody, some group that you can gather with. It might be a group of people in your neighborhood. It might be some people in your family. It might be a, a Bible study at your job. It might be your Sunday School Connect group in your church. That's why these things are so vitally important because they help us to be strong in our faith. But not only a personal faith in Christian friends and family, but then also a strong Bible-believing and loving church. There are churches everywhere. We've talked about that many times. You know, uh, our, our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, 45,000 churches. we got lots of churches around. Unfortunately, all of them are not strong. Unfortunately, all of them are not Bible-believing. There are other denominations. There are hundreds of thousands of churches in our, in our, in our nation, and then not all of them are strong Bible-believing churches. There are some that have compromised in different ways. But if you want to be strong in your faith, know that you have a personal faith, you surround yourself with family and friends that are strong in their faith, and then you're a part of a strong Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, loving fellowship of a local church. Those things don't guarantee that you will stay strong in your faith, but there are three ingredients that will help you every step of the way. Then notice a third thing. They were sturdy in persecution. They were facing persecution because of their faith. There in verse 13, Jesus says, You did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, there where Satan dwells. And we don't know the story here, but evidently Antipas was a believer and a follower of Christ. And because he was strong in his faith and, and he was persecuted for his faith, he was put to death for his faith. And even then, the church held up strong under persecution. I was doing some research on Christian persecution. We, we think, if we're not careful, that it took place in the days of the Bible but not much today. But we would be wrong if we felt that way. In January of 2017, Christianity Today reported that Christian persecution is at its highest rate in history. And they reported that 2016 was the worst year yet in history for Christian persecution around the world. The Jerusalem Post uh, in Jan on January the 11th of this year said that one out of 12 Christians worldwide are persecuted, not just discriminated against, 
but persecuted for their faith. The five stages of religious persecution are these. Step one, stereotype the Christians. They're called, call them hypocrites, call them negative names. You stereotype them as a group. Secondly, vilify Christians for crimes and misconduct. Accuse them, even if they didn't commit something. Accuse them. Oh, the Christians did this. Oh, the Christians did that. Thirdly, you marginalize them in society. You begin to ridicule them publicly. Make fun of, of Christian practices. Make fun of, of the Christian faith and, and turn people against uh, the Christians. And fourthly, you criminalize the, the Christian group. You make it illegal for them to practice their faith. Make it illegal to go out like in many places in the world. You cannot go out publicly and preach the gospel or talk to people about their faith. You cannot publicly pray in some parts of the world. And then lastly, persecute Christians outright. Remove their rights. If you're a Christian, you can't go here. If you're a Christian, you can't vote. If you're a Christian, this happens or that happens. And, and we might think, well, we don't really see that in America. And I would agree with you as a general premise, although there are different smatterings around the nation that you and I hear about in the news, but around the world today more than ever before, the fact that someone is seeking to live out their faith is bringing them persecution as never before. Now, let's notice the fourth thing today, and that is the compromise by the church. Here we brag on them because in the midst of ungodliness they're staying strong and they're holding up under persecution, yet there's compromise in this church. Notice in verse 14, Jesus says, I have a few things against you. Don't you hate it when somebody gives you a compliment and then they say, but. You're doing a great job, but. And now you know something is coming that's not positive and it's going to be a criticism. Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. There's two things I want to mention here. And they both relate to compromise by the church. The first is comprom compromise from pressure outside the church. There was pressure coming outside the walls of the church, outside the, the body of believers. There was pressure coming upon them that they would compromise their faith, just like in the day in which we live. If you go to a job and you're not allowed to, to, to live out your faith, if, if you're in your school and you're not allowed to, to, to live out your faith, to gather and to pray, if, if you're out in your community and you're not allowed to practice your faith in some form or fashion, if there's a law against something, then, then there's out, that's outside pressure that, that pushes against us that we, the, the purpose being that we would compromise our faith. And in that day in Pergamum, there was outside pressure to compromise their faith. Notice he says, You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice spirit, uh, sexual immorality. Now if you were to go back to the Old Testament and read in the book of Numbers, chapter 22, 23, 24, and the first part of chapter 25, there's an extended explanation of what's going on here. Here's the nutshell version. Balak was the king of Moab. And the Israelites, having, having come out of Egypt, were working their way through. And the king of Moab, Balak, said, I don't want them to come and defeat me. So he, he enlisted Balaam to come and be a prophet to curse Israel. Balaam wouldn't and couldn't do it. And, but then Balaam told him. He said, I can't curse them. But here's what you do. Entice them in to come and join you, to come along and to get along. You compromise and we'll compromise and we'll all be able to get along together. And it was through that compromise 
that Israel sinned against God. Because they, they came in and, and instead of holding fast to the religion that God had given them, the spirituality that God had given them, if you read back in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and the giving of the law and the giving of worship and the, and the, and the mandate after mandate after mandate to remain pure and undefiled from all these false religions and idolatry all around you. Stay true to me, God said. And Balaam told Balak and Balak put some... Uh, people out and they welcomed the Israelites in and they led them to practice pagan idolatry. They led them to, to, you practice my religion and I'll practice your religion. And part of the religion of the Moabites was, was different fertility rites that involved sexual immorality as God defined it. And then the people went along with it. And they compromised their faith. They compromised where they were. They compromised against God. And as a result, in judgment, the Bible reports that 24,000 of the Jews died and because of God's judgment upon them. So in Pergamum, even though there were, as a church, they were standing firm and staying strong, Jesus had said, you have some there. I don't know how many some is. It might have been... 10%. It might have been 20%. It might have been two people. I don't, we don't know. We're not told. It's not important. What is important is that in the church, a strong church, they were, they were tolerating sin. They were tolerating compromise of the faith. They were tolerating people who were, who were giving in to outside pressure from government, outside pressure from, from the other religions that surrounded them, outside pressure to compromise and some of them gave in. Now, uh, uh, Antipas uh, stood strong, and it cost him his life. And maybe others decided out of fear they would go along, maybe out of, out of a desire to make peace and to be happy or to be comfortable. But in the Old Testament, it was Balaam and Balak. In, 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 in Pergamum, uh, it, it, was, it was the same thing. And, uh, and, and then in the book of Revelation, I want you to notice something very important. that In, in, in the book of Revelation, the world, the culture of the world is symbolized as an immoral woman, a promiscuous woman, a sexually immoral woman. That's a picture of the world. But in the book of Revelation, the church is pictured as a pure bride. So two great contradictions of, of people, two, two different types of, 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 of images that describe the world. You have on the one hand the promiscuous, immoral. On the other, you have the pure virgin. And so uh, the, the church is called the pure virgin. We're not supposed to get involved with the immoral. And that's what was happening there in Pergamum. So in the Bible, we see that the church and the Christian that compromises with the world, either to avoid suffering or to achieve success, is a person or a church that commits what the Bible calls spiritual adultery and is being unfaithful to Jesus. That's what was happening there. So not only was there compromise happening in the church because of pressure from outside the church, but there's another reference here that there was compromise happening inside the church because of pressure from those inside the church. It wasn't just that the world outside was the enemy, but the church inside could be its own worst enemy. It says there in verse 15, So also you have some. Again, it doesn't say how many, just there were some. You have some that hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We talked about them a week or so ago. These were, part, these were members of the church. 
They were professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they led others to compromise in their pagan worship and in immorality in the same way that Balaam led Balak to, to compromise Israel in the days of the Old Testament. Now, inside the church, there can be some who lead others towards compromise. Unfortunately, and I hate to even have to say this, we live in a day and a time when within our own denomination, there are, there are those who have been exposed to have compromised the faith. I don't take pleasure in sharing these things with you, but they're out in the news, and, and I don't want you to think I'm either brushing it under the rug and not addressing it or, or have no comment to say, oh, no, I want to share a couple of things with you happening today, even among our own Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant denomination in America, the most, the most ambitious missionary-sending denomination uh, in the world, the, the ones who hold fast to the truth of the Bible. It, it's as if Jesus is saying to us, you're doing this right, and you're doing this right, and you're doing this right, but as a denomination of Southern Baptists, I've got this against you. There are those who have compromised, and it's coming to light left and right, and it's not pretty and not anything to be proud of, but I want to tell you that as it's coming to light, I am impressed at how it's being handled by those in our leadership. Let me give you some examples. This is a most recent edition of our biblical recorder. We make this available to you in print form and online. If you want to jot down a website, brnow.org, brnow.org, uh, that takes you to the biblical recorder. You can read a lot of these stories, but... but let me tell you a few things that have happened within our own denomination. Our uh, uh, Beth Moore, who many of you know as a, as a uh, women's uh, leader, has come out with some uh, statements about how she's been unfairly treated as a woman over the years by some very high-ranking people in our Southern Baptist Convention. And that sparked a, a, lot of, of, a lot of debate online and a lot of debate among our leadership. Our executive committee president, Frank Page, uh, publicly admitted to immoral behavior and has stepped down uh, from his position. One of our seminary presidents, Paige Patterson, has been removed from office for mishandling things from a moral point of view. There have been others uh, who have, have stepped forward and have been exposed in different ways. And, and in our most recent edition of our biblical recorder, let me read you just a couple of headlines. On the inside, the editor uh, writes a, a full-page article called this, Revival, Judgment, and the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, mess. I hate to read that in our own newspaper. Don't you have to hear that? The next page is, is an article by the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, his article is entitled, The Wrath of God Poured Out. In the article, he says, I did not see this coming. I was wrong. The judgment of God has come. Judgment has now come to the house of Southern Baptist Convention. The terrible swift sword of public humiliation has come with a vengeance. There can be no doubt that the story is not over. So in other words, he's saying more is going to come. Well, listen. On the one hand, it's, it's a little discouraging as a pastor to be a part of a denomination that I've been so proud of over the years to see this happening. 
On the other hand, it should never be surprising that these things happen, whether it be at a national denomination or a local church level or in a family, because sin still happens, compromise still happens. Today, the same pressures come from inside the church and from outside the church. The government passes law concerning the sanctity of human life and concerning uh, 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 life itself and morality that is contradictory to the Bible, and it pressures the church to compromise where it stands. There are calls from interfaith groups to say, let's all get together and let's all participate together in this when this group believes this and this group believes that, and they contradict each other and they contradict the Word of God, and yet there's a call, let's all get together in unity, and we dare not do those things. There are professing churches, professing Christian churches that embrace and preach a moral standard that is outside the Bible. And we recognize that to embrace Christianity, to embrace Christianity is to embrace the truth of Scripture and to stand against compromise, whether it be to the Word of God or to the world itself. We're called to faithfulness. Now notice very quickly, I need to, I need to scoot, unfortunately. I wish, I wish I had three weeks, Al, for each of these churches. I just, just don't have that time. But notice here in verse 16, the correction for the church. The correction. Jesus says, you're doing well here, but I have this against you. You're compromising your testimony. You're compromising your, your, your morals. You're compromising your faith. And you are committing spiritual adultery against me. And then Jesus, in, in, in the words that, that we love to see in Scripture... He says, therefore, here's what you're going to do about it. Here's the answer. Here's how you make things right. He doesn't just condemn us and judge us and we're done. He gives us a way to make things right. Therefore, and he gives a one-word solution. Repent. Repent. Turn. It's not complicated. It's not, it's not complex. It's not long and drawn out. You don't have to go to a class. You don't have to read a book. Just simply understand. You're walking in the wrong direction. Now simply turn around and walk in the right direction. That's the message of Jesus to the church at Pergamum. That's the message of Jesus to the church anywhere. Simply stop doing what's wrong. Start doing what's right. And listen, He would say to us, He would say to me, and He would say to you, and He would say to them, it doesn't matter what you believe about it. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter what others say about it. It doesn't matter what other people are doing. What's right is right, and what's wrong is wrong. I'm God. You're not. Repent. That's a true message for my life as much as it is for a church at Pergamum 2,000 years ago. It's a correction for your life if there are areas of compromise that have creeped their way in. Notice uh, in verse 16, there's a warning for the church. If not, here's the solution, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. We should be so thankful for the warning of Jesus. Because while there is still time, He lets us know what the problem is. He lets us know what the solution is. He calls us to change our ways and repent. And then He gives us the warning. If you don't, judgment's coming. There are those that take, they're, they're, they're talking about the Southern Baptist Convention right now, and they're saying, is judgment on the house of God because, because the, the warnings have been there. People have known. It's not been public. Things have happened behind the scenes. But listen, when it comes out, the judgment of God comes, and there are those, and I would agree with them, they're saying, it's not necessarily a totally bad thing because when judgment comes, guess what can come behind it? Revival can come. 
If people will listen, if people will repent, if people will respond, if people will recognize, yeah, there's compromise here and there, but there's been compromise right here in my heart as well. If we'll do that and we'll turn, guess what happens? Then, then, then we are restored. Notice verse 17, the encouragement for the church. Three encouragements, very quickly. The first is this, listen. Listen. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen with your ears. No, don't just let the words bounce off. Don't just think they're for somebody else. These words are for every Christian, myself included and you included. Listen. Secondly, act. Do something. Don't just let these words hit you in the ears. Do something. Act on this. He says there in verse 17, To the one who conquers, to the one who remains faithful, to the one who will repent, to the one who will make things right, to the one who will come clean. And then thirdly, receive. Three things that we receive. To the one who holds fast and stands firm and comes clean and repents. Three things. First of all, provision. He says, I'll give some of the hidden manna. God will provide for your needs. In, in hidden ways that nobody else can see, God will provide for the needs that we have. He's always promised to provide. He always will provide for those as we stay faithful to Him. There's provision. Then secondly, there's innocence. He says, I will give him a white stone. You might say, well, what good is a white stone? I've got one right here in my hand, and I'm not going to throw it at anybody. So just, just don't take, take comfort. In the days of the New Testament, the judicial system, the, the, the odds or, or the, the sentence was given with either a black stone for guilt or a white stone for innocence. And Jesus says, if you will repent, if you will come back to me, if you will stand firm, then I will give you, you'll have that white stone, that, that sign of innocence, so that when you go to the door to go out of the courthouse so that they won't lock you back up, you show them the white stone, and listen, that's your ticket out. And likewise, when you get to heaven, the white stone, the sign of innocence is your ticket in. And then... There's, thirdly, there's an identity. On that stone, I don't have anything written on this one, but on that stone, that white stone of innocence, is a name written, a new name that you get and that I'll get. Nobody else knows what it is except us. And basically what it's saying is that we have an innocence in spite of our guilt, and we have a name that's our identity, and so that when we stand at the door of heaven to go in, we have innocence with our name on it, and we're welcomed into glory. That's what we're called to do. That's the encouragement that we have. In the book, Flickering Lamps, that Henry Blackaby has written about these churches, he says, It is foolhardy to assume that we can tolerate one sin as long as the majority of our activities are praiseworthy. It's foolish to think, well, all these other things are good. I'm just going to harbor this little sin off by myself. Nobody else has to know about it. Listen, God knows about it. And if it's brought compromise into our lives, then we are called to repent. Juan Sanchez, who works with Nine Marks Ministry, says this, In this hostile world that we live in today, the temptation to compromise our biblical convictions in order to fit in is strong. There's a strong temptation for you and me to compromise our faith, to compromise our stand, to compromise our integrity, to compromise our morality, to compromise our testimony, to give in and give up and get along with other people so that we might fit in and avoid other people saying things about us and calling us names or ostracizing us in some form or some fashion. Listen, that temptation is strong. He goes on to say, when our faith is challenged, will we continue to believe that Jesus' words are true and good? Or will we turn to the words of someone else? We must not compromise on the truth. We must not compromise on the truth of God's Word. 
the church at Pergamum, in spite of the really good things about them, was tolerating compromise. And Jesus called them to repent. Let me ask you this morning. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Because likewise, Jesus calls Ridgecrest Baptist Church to evaluate ourselves and to make sure that we're not tolerating the sin of immorality or the sin of idolatry. And to make sure that in the face of those temptations that we stand strong. I'm going to pray for us. I invite you to join me in your heart in praying this for yourself and for our church. And then we're going to sing together our song of invitation. And the beautiful, the beautiful thing is that the message of Jesus to return, to repent, to stand strong is still there. And while the judgment of God may fall from time to time and person to person, circumstance to circumstance, even if the hand of God, of judgment, has come upon you, it's never too late to turn to Him if you still have breath with which to breathe. Our Heavenly Father, help us to stand strong in the one that who knows and the one who speaks, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, when we're surrounded by ungodliness all around us, may we be strong in faith and may we be sturdy in persecution, that whatever comes against us, we would stand strong on the rock of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we not compromise with outside pressure or from pressure from inside the church. God, help us. And Lord, may we repent of any compromise in our lives and this church as you call us to repent. And in doing so, Lord, may we listen with ears and hear. May we act accordingly. May we receive victory from you. Lord, we ask you to examine our hearts. And Lord, I'm going to say this is not an easy message to prepare or to preach. But Lord, it's in your word, so it's a necessary message. And I pray that today I've delivered it with both conviction and biblical accuracy in the power of the Spirit, but with grace and mercy and compassion, as you call all of us, Lord, all of us, to examine our hearts and repent of compromise and come to you. Thank you for the warning, even now today. May we be found faithful as our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.